my name is Brittany Lane. I am Miss New Hampshire USA 2023, and this is my interview with the Pageant Project. Hello everyone, it's Adrian from the Pageant Project. My special guest for this evening, I believe her time, is Brittany Lane, who is Miss New Hampshire USA 2023. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm great. I had a full work day. I've got some some work done and now I'm able to end my day with you. So I'm really excited. That's perfect. It, what, it's Thursday evening for you, correct? We were just talking about time zone differences. It's Friday morning here. What time is it for you? It's at 8 o'clock here, 8 p.m. Okay. All right. So you're pulling pulling the late shift. Um, you won your title back in February, I believe. So you've now had it for almost half a year. What's, um, what's life been like since then? I mean, a lot of young girls' dreams is to win a USA state title, and here you are. So how have the last five or six months been? It's been absolutely crazy. I've learned a lot. Um, so when I, last year, uh, the year prior, I was first runner-up, and this was my very first time in um, competing for a state title in the USA system. I had done smaller pageant systems and kind of getting my feet wet, seeing if I could do this USA thing. And when I was first runner up, I was like, oh, wait, I can I can do this. Um, so coming into this year after I won, I think I wasn't prepared for the commitment that it was. I didn't really understand how I was gonna fit all of my duties as Miss New Hampshire USA on top of a full-time job. That mm. was, I think the biggest change for me. Um, of really having to take a step back from work and say to my boss, you know, hey, please be patient with me while I try to figure out my time management and my schedule. Um, that was, I think, the biggest change, but I've also mm -hmm. been able to do really cool stuff that I don't think I would have been able to without this title. I've made amazing connections and I've been able to uh, really just get the word out in New Hampshire. Sorry, we just lost the audio for half a second, but you're back now. Um, the the time management, I think, is a huge thing. A lot of people who maybe don't know a lot about pageants or who have not won a, let's say, a big title, because obviously Miss USA, a state title is one of the biggest ones you can win. They just see the pictures and they assume that when you say that you're busy, it's just going around waving to people, taking pretty photos going around in a bikini, et cetera. And they're like, what is she talking about? Hard work, give me a break. Can you just give us an idea of the duties of a Miss USA state title holder? Sure, so every state's a little bit different because they're all run by a different production company. So different licensees. Um, our specific state um, currently does not have a director. Um, we had some things behind the scenes that happened. Um, so we don't have a director, but going as soon as I won, I had to plan all of my own events. I have to reach out to every sponsor. I have to really make the connections myself um, to be able to plan these things. So if you see an event on social media that I did, so for example, I threw out a first pitch at one of our minor league baseball teams in the 
state, which was so fun and a super dream of mine, um, that took two months to plan. So this five minute throw took two months. So there's so much emails and calls and text messages and scheduling that has to be done on top of, you know, a 40 hour a, a week work week. So it's definitely a lot. We baseball here in Australia is not huge. We we kind of have it, but here the big game is cricket. But I, I've seen this first pitch idea and celebrities coming out. And very often from what I've seen, the celebrity comes out and does an absolutely horrible job. I can you just explain what happens? Is it is it more so it's not during the actual game, is it more like a ceremonial thing to get things started? Yes. So for me, my dream, I'm a, so I went to Boston, Massachusetts uh, for school, for college. So I fell in love with the Boston Red Sox, which is a really big team in the States. And I, my dream, I said it in my interview at Miss New Hampshire USA. I just want to throw out a first pitch at the Red Sox game. That's all. That's the one thing I really, very difficult and still trying. Um, but luckily our minor league team here in the state allowed me to do that. But it was very ceremonial. Like I went after a seven year old boy who played like little league. So right. he, I was asking him for pointers. He was helping me. It was not the most graceful throw, but I loved it and I had a really good time. <laughs> How well did the throw go? I mean, did it make did it go over the where it's supposed to go and not bounce beforehand or go into the stand or something? It it went right into the glove, um, which oh, was wow. great. It just was a little bit high. He had to kind of yeah. reach for it, um, but I got to keep the ball, which was really cool. And now I have oh. that memory forever, which is awesome. I, I feel like one day I'll get someone to explain to me baseball rules because <laughs> I, I hear people talk about it like, you know, this innings and you got this down and that and I'm like what what are you talking about but then I remember that we guys have cricket and me trying to explain cricket to anyone is just beyond farcical but just um, backing up because you you don't have a director so some people who who have had let's say troublesome directors are going like I wish I didn't have a director but it does mean a lot of extra work for yourself doesn't it because that means unless you organize it nothing is going to happen Mm-hmm. Yes. So for me, the Miss Universe organization, who is our, you know, parent, they have been amazing. They have reached out to us. They have made sure that other directors, they have made sure we're taken care of. And I'm so, it's really been eye-opening to see how many people are there to come up and help us kind of make sure that we get to Miss USA and we are the best mm. version of ourselves when we're there. So I'm so grateful for everybody. And I I do think everybody has, being a director is a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of time. And, it, you know, there's no bad blood. I kind of understand what happened with ours and we have to adapt and be flexible. Yeah. But for me, it's a lot of kind of making sure our sponsors want to stay on board, making sure, you know, I'm prepped for Miss USA. I reach out to the right people that can help guide me and making sure I really lean on my sponsors and lean on my village um, of people that have come behind me. So it's definitely been a learning experience uh, the last month or so, for sure. I mean, you've you've got a full-time job as well. So in between doing that and then in the run-up to probably one of the biggest pageants in the world, have you you had any free time or downtime or sleep? Is that a rare commodity? Are we addicted to caffeine or more so than before? 
Oh, for sure. So I've always been addicted to caffeine, um, but I've also always been a like type A scheduler. So I've yeah. always had a scheduling book, like a personal one, a work one, a, like appointments. So everything has for me has been scheduled. It's just, I have a little bit more of a tighter schedule and I've had to really have those conversations with my friends and family of, mm. you know, I want to be here and I want to spend time with you and I do my best to be able to. However, I made this commitment for a year and I want to be able to perform the best I can. And I want to give back to my state and the people who are on, like I said, my village, they understand and they're behind me all the way. They come to my events. They support me on social media. Um, I've definitely lost some sleep for sure. Um, and it's, it's really kind of giving myself grace and making sure that I'm practicing self-care and I'm doing what I need to do so I can be the best Miss New Hampshire USA that I can be at the end of the day. When, when you say that you're tight, you're type A and then you have a tight schedule, um, I, I'm fascinated by people like that who can get so much done in such a small amount of time. But just a question in terms of giving yourself grace and having some downtime, do you find that you have to schedule that in as well? Otherwise, it just doesn't happen or you're just trying to squeeze that in when you have a, a spare few minutes somewhere? So when I first won this title, I didn't schedule in free time and I thought I had to do everything or it wouldn't happen, right? So if hmm. I didn't email this one connection that I had, I would never be able to talk to them again. Um, and so that took up my free time because I thought I had to get everything done in this month. Um, and I learned that without that, I would, I started to really like my anxiety and depression really started to heighten, um, and I would just shut down. So from mm. there, I learned I have to schedule in my free times, mostly on Sundays. So I try to do, you know, a couple hours for meal prep and stuff on Sundays if I can. But it's I've learned in the last six months the most about myself than I have ever in my life, um, which I'm so grateful for. But I definitely need that schedule time. What are the, I think it's really interesting you say that because I think one of the biggest gifts from winning a title as big as yours is actually what you learn about yourself in, in the process. It's not necessarily whether you win or not, but it's what you learn about yourself. So if I can just ask, so as we've already said, you've had the title for about half a year now. What are the biggest things that you've learned about yourself in that time? One of the big things is learn about me was I needed to learn to use my voice and advocate for myself. I'm really great at advocating for other people mm. who may have similar experiences I do or people that I work with. I'm so good about using my voice and really yelling from the rooftop for others. When it comes to myself, I start to kind of get shy and I hold back and I've leading up to this, the biggest pageant, one of the biggest pageants in the world, right? Like, as you said, I learned mm. I needed to advocate for myself and what I wanted and what I felt most comfortable with. So that was a really big thing. And another was trusting my gut. I never really trusted my gut. I was kind of like, oh, well, they said this, so maybe we'll go with them. Um, and that kind of led me down a path of trying to people please. Mm. And I learned that that's not how I want to portray myself on the Miss USA stage. I want to be me and I want to surround myself with people who know me and want me to better myself. Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying in terms of 
you know, advocating for everyone else, no problem. You become an absolute hero, a lioness. And then when it comes to yourself, sort of going, oh, well. But I mean, I have to say, because I've read your bio, you sent it through to me. And one of the things I'll bring up here, just on the bottom of the screen, uh, you helped pass a sexual assault survivor bill of rights in Rhode Island, giving rights to thousands of survivors using your own personal story. So this is something that we should probably dig into. We don't have to go into it any more than you're comfortable with. But this is obviously not a comfortable topic. It's deeply personal to yourself. And here you are helping passing, helping to pass a, a bill of rights. So obviously, when it comes to other people, you're, you're happy to yell it from the rooftop, so to speak. Um, tell me more about your story. Tell the people watching more about your story and some of this amazing work that you've been doing. Yeah, so I like to start the story of when my sexual assault happened, I was living with my parents. I was working two jobs. I had graduated college. I thought I was really in the clear of that typical statistics of females and males who get sexually assaulted in college, which is usually where we hear the most numbers. We get the most warnings. I thought I was in the clear, right? So mm. I was living with my parents, kind of getting back on my feet after school. And one night we went out, I went out with some of my friends and I woke up the next morning learning I was sexually assaulted. So I personally knew everything about aftercare and resources based on a TV show, uh, Law and Order SVU. And uh, if you're not familiar, it's a sh it's Law and Order, but they do sexual victims units. So it's a lot of sex yeah. crimes and domestic violence and things. And they tell everyone that, you know, let's get a rape kit. Let's go to talk to a lawyer and report. So that's what we did. And we learned, I learned a lot through that about how broken our justice system was. So for example, I went to the hospital with my mom. I was living in Rhode Island at the time where my parents live. Um, and I went to the hospital with my mom. They didn't have a rape kit nurse who was trained to do those on staff at the time. So they made me wait for six hours in an emergency room the day of my assault, waiting to get a rape kit done. Turns out they never had one and they had to send me to a different hospital. So me after an assault had to sit there for eight hours, confused, nervous, anxious, everything, scared. So that was a big thing in our Bill of Rights that I, I really worked on um, getting passed. And that's why it was in Rhode Island. So following my assault, I was told wasn't worth pressing charges. It's all hearsay. You don't remember. We don't know if there were drugs in your system. We would have to run your rape kit. I was told by numerous people to not press charges. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, I, I was okay with it for a while because I was so depressed and I thought it was my fault and I had the guilt and the shame. And I, I just didn't know the, what I know now. I wasn't educated. So I reached out to this really amazing organization called RISE in the States, and they work to pass this Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights that is already drafted. It is passed federally, and they work to get volunteers to pass it in each state. So I hopped on to the Rhode Island campaign um, because at the time I was living in Rhode Island, and a lot of my the things that happened to me were in Rhode Island. And... I talked to senators. I learned how to reach out to make us get a sponsor, to talk to House members, to talk to senators, things that I've never done before. Mm -hmm. And using my personal story made it so much more real. 
one to me and I think two to the senators and house members that I testified in front of. And of course I needed to do my healing journey. So I was able to heal and really work on myself before I did this. Um, But we, I worked for two years on this bill. It was thrown out once um, because it's, wasn't agreed upon. And these rights, when, when we say like the bill of rights, it is very basic rights that we think every Mm -hmm. survivor should have. So it's access to a rape kit because some States don't have that. It's the right to not have to pay a copay for your rape kit. When you go into a hospital Mm. and pay a copay, I had to pay two copays for my rape kit. Um, It's the right to have a lawyer there when you make a statement to the police. I didn't have that. Um, So it's very basic rights that everybody should have and be educated on, right? So we, after two years, we passed through the Senate and the House, and then the governor of Rhode Island signed it into law. Actually, it was a year ago this month that it was passed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's it's really, to me, it's my justice. So it's Mm. how I'm able to heal and say, I'm doing this, like we said, for other people. I'm doing this for the next survivor, who may not know these things, they will be educated where I wasn't. How did it feel when you got the news that it had passed? It was very full circle. So I was on a plane with my mom and we were going to the United Nations headquarters um, to speak to representatives um, from obviously the United Nations, um, about passing a resolution bill. And so I got off the plane ready to take on the day and talk more about my story. And I got the message and I remember just crying hysterically. Mm. Like, And I'm talking, mm. looking at my mom's like, why am I crying? I shouldn't be crying. This is exciting. And she's like, cause this is what you've been waiting for. Like, mm. this is the moment that there were two years of work that you put in, you're doing something and you're making a change. And I think that really speaks to how hard change is, especially in our judicial system, in our government, in America, for sure. So, I mean, in terms of what you've been through, I, I think just to back it up, I I know women, I think everyone, unfortunately, knows someone who has been assaulted or raped. And everyone's story is different, happened in different countries, different circumstances. And one recurring motif that I hear is it's not survivor's guilt because it's not not a war. But I mean, you mentioned it as well is this fact that you kind of were blaming yourself or you felt guilty about it. Um, and I just I just want to. How do you heal through that? Because guilt is one of those really, really one of the most powerful emotions, perhaps not in a good way. But I think a lot of the conversation in society, when a story such as yours happens, it's like, oh, she shouldn't have been here or she should have done this. She should have done that. But as you've outlined already, it wasn't a typical case anyway, and it still happened to you. And then you had to go through the trauma of afterwards, which is another thing that we'll get to. But how do you personally heal from that? Time. For me, it was time because, and I, And it's not like you're, I personally don't believe trauma is something you can fully, fully heal from. So Mm. this is just in my experience. Some people disagree with that. But for me, my initial thought, like you said, was why did I go? I shouldn't have gone out that night. I didn't want to go. 
like I didn't want to go, but I was kind of convinced into it. Like if I didn't, if I didn't wear that, if I didn't talk to him in that way. Um, And we're really, and a part of the United Nations work was to end survivor blaming. So it was to end this fact of what were you wearing? Did you smile too much? Did you drink too much? The first question I got at the police station was what were you wearing and how much did you have to drink? Those were the first two questions. Why did I'm curious? Why does that even matter? I don't. I don't really. I kind of understand, but I also don't at the same time. So why are those the first two questions? It, it doesn't. And this is part of the stigma that we have surrounding sexual assault and rape. It's well, what did you do to provoke this person? That's not about like that's not what it's about. And I think working mm. on this bill and using my platform and my social media to express this is that you did nothing wrong right so survivors you were there and unfortunately you were in the wrong place at the wrong time and for me in my healing journey I was very much my mom continuously says this thing everything happens for a reason Mm. and I'm being so mad at her and I was like there is no reason that this happened to me that a bad thing happened I can look back on it now and say I see why this happened for me. And that was part of my healing journey, but everybody's is different and it's not linear. Healing is Mm -hmm. not linear in any way, shape or form. It's you may have good days and you may have bad days. I know for a fact on the anniversary of my assault, I take the day off of work because I physically just can't get myself to that place. Um, And it's about patience you really need to have patience with yourselves and find your supports and find self-care that works for you. How, how long, you know, I mean, we say that you took two years to, to pass the bill in terms of your own healing journey. And as you really kind of pointed out, you, you never, and I agree with this. I, I think trauma is something that you always remember it, it. I think over time it's emotional pull on you might lessen. But I, I think it's still there, as you pointed out. You remember the anniversary very clearly. But how long has your healing journey? How how long what it's ongoing? But how long was the main part of your healing journey? I would say so. It didn't really hit me right away. So my assault happened in November. It wasn't until February where I really started to break down. I was missing work. Um, I was not mm. getting out of bed. So I really pushed through for a few months of kind of masking my pain and how hard much I was suffering from all of this. So it wasn't until February. And then I believe I did probably about three or four months in like very intensive um, trauma therapy Mm. where I was able to, a lot came up and I worked on my anxiety and my own mental health. I took some time off of work. So I would probably say it took a couple of months to really get back and feel like myself again. And another, another thing that I, I want to ask you is again, I've spoken to several women who've been through stories similarly to yourself. And it's when you wake up the morning after and you realize what's happened it's that whole feeling of what do I do now? Because I have to imagine, and I will never feel this as a man, most likely, but there's the guilt, there's the shame. There's also the, what do I do now? There is, do I go to the police? Do I not do, uh, do I get a lawyer? Do I not, do I go to the hospital or not? Because I'm going to assume that most people 
aren't aware of what to do if they're sexually assaulted because they might be thinking if I prepare for it, that means it's going to happen. So in terms of looking back on it now, having gone through what you've gone, what are the steps that you would advise a young woman to go through if, God forbid, something similar to what happened to you happens to them? So my first piece of advice is absolutely go to the police. So make mm -hmm. a formal police report. That's what I did. Um, I went and you go with that jurisdiction where it occurred. So for example, mine was in Connecticut. So yeah. I went to the police of where it occurred and you make a police report. And then they'll also guide you to go immediately to a uh, hospital to get a rape kit done. And mm -hmm. usually in those hospitals, they have social workers that are there to provide you with resources to check on mental health. Not every hospital has this. Not every state has this. Um, I was lucky enough that the hospital that I was at had that available to me. But, and then you follow up with those or so following the rape kit, usually um, the police will follow up with you. So the police were okay. following up with me, seeing if we had a case, things like that. And usually they will get you in touch with a lawyer. Um, and that in itself is very overwhelming because mm. you're, sitting here like this bad thing happened to me, but now I also have to make a decision if I want to press charges and see my assailant again. Mm. So this is also another fact of why we need more social workers in hospitals to be able to provide the support to survivors. On top of that, I know you mentioned too, the majority of survivors are women. It's mm. statistically proven. However, it happens to males too, and males are less likely to report than females because mm. of that stigma yeah that kind of male masculinity where they're like no no no, i'm fine i'll be okay like i just pretend to pretend it didn't happen and i think that's also important to shed light on it does happen to males and it's okay and you can still ask for help because there is help available it may just not it's not as publicized as it should be from your experience and it's okay if you don't know the answer to this but I have to imagine in a lot of cases, a young person would be going back and forth as to whether they want to go to the police or not, because that's probably, I mean, it's got to be incredibly confronting. Not only are you assaulted, then you have to go and tell someone and probably tell your friends and family that you were assaulted. And then the questions can start like, oh, where were you? Why were you? And like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is really not helpful. Um, if someone waits if they're confused and let's say they go back and forth for a day or a week or a month, is, is it still the same overall process in steps to take? If you decide, let's say a month later, or in your case, let's say three months, if you decided three months later or a year later that actually this thing happened and I do want to press charges, is it too late then or are the steps radically different? So Say, for example, you wait a month and you say, I should, and you don't make a police report. You can yeah. ask at any time in that t it's 10, every state is different, but usually it's about 10 years that you have. You can right. do that at any time. So you can get a rape kit anytime. You can get a, make the police report at any time. The longer you wait, the less evidence there is mm. and the less kind of validity behind your, your experiences. So, and I know this from personal experience because when the police called and asked me if I wanted to press charges, he basically said there wasn't a lot of evidence, but you could press charges if you want. I declined it 
because I was just not in a state to see him or have let him have my address or any of that. Mm. And they said, the longer that you wait, the less believable you are to a judge. So I can still press charges. So I could go right now and say, I want to press charges. I was told by this police officer that it would probably not go anywhere because of the amount of time I spent waiting on it. Okay. Which it's not the way it should be. Survivors should be able to be do this in their own time. And if it takes you three years to feel ready Mm. to press charges, you should have, you have the right to do that. Yeah. It's just explained to me personally that it would less likely be, you know, taken seriously by a judge. So unless you decide to press charges, then nothing happens to this man who did it and presumably he could do it again. Right. Yes. That, that, that can't feel good. If something like that happened to me, I would be horrifically angry. And it also goes back to my own blaming, right? So it goes back to, mm. well, I didn't press charges. So what if he does it again to somebody else? Is that my fault? Oh. Right. And and the, you have to work through that a lot too. There's so many <laughs> layers, right? And I'm so a lot of the reason that I know so much about trauma is I'm a trauma certified um social worker. So I do trauma work with kids. Um mm. and I think a big reason that I do focus on trauma work is because of this experience. Because yeah. I've lived it, because I've been there. Um and so I learned a lot about how messed up <laughs> um yeah. our, for survivors trauma trauma is one of those things i mean you talked about it's not it not being linear i mean mental health journeys in general from my experience are not linear but trauma is almost like an octopus it has legs in all these different parts of you and you pull one then another part gets brought up and it's just it's damaging in so many ways um when so just in terms of the pageant so a lot a lot of guilt is as you said when you go to the police station the first thing they ask you is what are you what did what were you wearing and how much you know did you have to drink if you had anything to drink not that that excuses the behavior at all um and then a lot of women have difficulty trusting someone first off um just feeling safe but then also they're guilted into well i shouldn't have worn that i shouldn't have worn this etc 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 um and then pageants is predicated to some degree obviously on your presentation and how you look etc what was there any conflict for you did you struggle at all given what you've gone through to then back up to go on the stage was there an internal struggle for you feeling that confidence again to be able to walk the stage I took a break from pageants for a while after myself. I probably took about a year off to really feel, because I wasn't comfortable going on stage. I wasn't ready to go back on there because I was like, I'm going to be more of a kind of a image for somebody to look at that I don't, maybe somebody I don't want to look at. I don't trust people I don't know. So when I decided to compete for the USA system, that's a swimsuit. That's Mm. really expensive like kind of being my most vulnerable self. So when I was preparing, I think I took it as I am doing the biggest, when I went on stage in swimsuit for the first time, 
after my assault, I had said, I am doing this for every single survivor that doesn't, mm. that was asked, what were you wearing? For mm. every survivor who doesn't feel comfortable going outside in a swimsuit. Yeah. Because it does not matter what you were wearing. I'm going on stage for everybody who feels ashamed of that. So that was a really big thing for me of one, I'm doing it for myself and showing that I can do this and two, for everyone else. And I want to make a point that we can talk about the uncomfortable things. Sexual assault mm. to talk about is very uncomfortable for people because it's hard and it's not a normal thing. So this was a great way for me to one, refine my confidence yeah. and two, so that it doesn't, that we're really ending the stigma and I've become more confident. One since my assault, I've definitely learned to use my voice um, mm -hmm. and be an advocate and use my story for good instead of looking at the bad, I'm really trying to find the good in it and that everything happens yeah. for a reason kind of attitude. And I think pageantry has allowed me to do that and find a, people who have similar stories, who understand me and are my biggest cheerleaders. Mm. Do you, just in terms of a very general question after what you've been through, and this is in some ways a silly question, but often we are asked, do we think that people are inherently good or inherently bad? And as you pointed out, your mom said everything happens for a reason. I don't know how much I believe that one. I think it's it happens for a reason if you make the reason. I don't think it just happens like it will fall into you. God says, here's the reason for it, because we've all had horrible things happen to us or happen to people that we care about. And it's all very well and good for us to say, well, it happened for a reason for me, but what about the pers poor person it happened to? So just from your experience, after going through what you've been through, where are you weighing in on the people are inherently good or inherently bad question? I know it's a very general one, but that's just what I'm feeling at the moment. Yeah, I think it's that's a tricky question. And I think yeah. I've learned a lot from where I was three years ago after my assault, I would tell you if I like, if it had just happened, I'd be like, nope, everyone's bad. Everyone, like there are people yeah. that are bad and that's how they are. Um, I've, I'm a social worker, as I said. So I do a lot of mental health counseling with kids and parents. And I see that that nature versus nurture is really real. So mm. people, I truly believe that people are good. I think they've been impacted by their environment way more than we realize. So if you have an invalidating parent, if you are in an invalidating environment, you're going to grow up to just have that negativity and feel yeah. that the world's against you and that you don't learn right from wrong. So I really think it's about the environments that people are being raised in and surround themselves mm. with. And I think that really impacts who they are as a person. If that kind of wraparound answers your question. <laughs> No, it does. I'm just thinking about it because people talk a lot about the importance of kindness and very often it's a very esoteric ethereal argument. But I think what you outlined is why that's actually so important because when someone hasn't been brought up in a supportive environment, and a lot of us have not, just having one stranger treat you with a bit of kindness can literally turn your life around. Um, so I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Um, I it's such a nuanced topic and this because I've done some work in the field it's one that I feel many many different ways about um particularly when the police ask you that question that one really irks me is there 
some sort of way that the police are trained? I mean, they're trying to do all sorts of things. Are they trained in how to handle someone, a young person coming forward and saying, I was raped? Are they trained what questions to ask and what not to ask? Because from my work in mental health, there are certain things that you don't ask or at certain times you shouldn't ask for all sorts of reasons. But do the police get any training in terms of, okay, young woman's coming in saying she was raped. Here's the process. What do we do step by step? I'm not sure. There may be some towns and cities that provide that training to like um, police stations mm-hmm. and police forces. I'm not sure for certain. Um, okay. That's kind of one of my things on my list where we, the agency that I work with provides like mental health 101 to our police in mm. Manchester, New Hampshire. So our agency goes in and teaches people who, you know, the police who are dealing with somebody who may have schizophrenia or maybe suffering yeah. from autism. We teach them ways to really interact with them, make sure everybody's safe. So nothing kind of really drastic or escalated happens. And I think that that's a really good point that I think that should be in Mm. trainings for police as well. Like, for example, one of our, um, in our bill of rights, it's the right to have a female officer take your statement. Mm. You request it. I was never given that option. I had two males doing my interview, but we don't know those things which I think should be implemented more. I mean, you, you passed the bill. Is is that part of your life now done or are there other things now you're looking to pass or to advocate in other ways moving forwards? I definitely want to keep doing the work that I've been doing in Rhode Island. So when I say the bill is passed, we had, I think we have a couple rights that were taken out of the bill that were in the original mm-hmm. draft because they wouldn't pass through. Um, So for example, one of them that didn't pass was that when a survivor is making a statement, like their statement in court, and they're Mm -hmm. testifying and being questioned, the general public cannot be in the court, Um, which means like a grandma, a a baby, like random people cannot be in the court. Yeah. However, that kind of touches on our constitutional rights to a public um, trial. So yeah. that was something that we had taken out um, and working to get those things back in. I've definitely mm-hmm. had to take a back seat to working on these bills once I won Miss New Hampshire USA because mm. there's not a lot of time. Um, but I'm still involved with RISE and I get to chat with everybody and I was named one of their coaches. So I occasionally help with other states as well. Okay, so now I need you to unpack your life, so to speak. So okay. we've... We've un- uncovered a lot and talked about a lot, and there's obviously so much that we could talk about. And you know, I'm sure that you you, you do your your heart goes out to anyone who's been affected by a similar story. Um, but how do you? What are the different things you're doing at the moment? So obviously, you're Miss New Hampshire USA, which doesn't take an inconsiderable amount of time. You said that you work with children. That's the full time job. And then I got to imagine there's pageant prep. There's all this other stuff. You mentioned this organization rise. Unpack the spider web of your life, if you would, for me. Yes. So I work full time. I work 40 hours a week at um, a mental health center doing trauma work and other psychotherapies with kids and families and adolescents. Um, I do that four days a week. So it's four tens. I have Fridays off, which has been great. Um, I also occasionally work with Rise. So it's not that large of a commitment. It's really when I feel like I can volunteer my time. Yeah. And then... 
On top of Miss USA prep, I work very closely with Best Buddies New Hampshire. So they're a really amazing organization that I got involved with in um, from a former Miss New Hampshire USA who was really involved. And before I had even won, I have my own buddy that I work with who's amazing. Um, and I do a lot of, I'm going to start doing more fundraising with them and really advocate for them. But yeah, and then I also do some advocacy with um, sexual assaults agencies in the state. And that's kind of goes under that Miss New Hampshire USA umbrella of work. How, um, just, just in terms of your nine to five, although it's not technically a nine to five, but in terms of your full-time job, what, what is the day-to-day -day of that like? I, I've worked, as I said, in mental health quite a lot, and you feel and on one hand that you're making an incredible impact, yet on the other hand, I found it incredibly draining. It's the only way that I can describe it. If you have an emotional battery, that's a real thing. Working with people who are going through something, if you have 5% of humanity in you, mm -hmm. it can be incredibly draining. It gives you an immense perspective on your own problems, but it's also incredibly draining. So your nine to five, just unpack that a little bit. And is it sort of something that you need to sort of sometimes recharge from? Yes. So I do um, an eight to six shift. So I'm a community mental health worker. So I yeah. kind of am a hybrid of I have an office at our agency, but I also mm -hmm. am driving to kids' homes. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, like my Wednesday, I'll do Wednesdays in, off, in, in office day. So I'll have meetings in the morning while usually the kids are at school or at camp and kind of getting some paperwork done. And then in the afternoons, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one sessions with the kids. So just like therapy, mm -hmm. just like you would right. go into a therapy session, that's really what I do right. just okay. for a nonprofit agency. Um, it's like outpatient kind of work. Yeah. And do you go home most days feeling recharged or, I mean, you must, I imagine you go home feeling like you've made a difference. Sometimes there are some days where I come home and I'm like, okay. I just colored with kids all day, um, which was great for my mental health and that's <laughs> time what they needed. Like they just needed me to color with them and say, good job. Um, yeah. cause they don't get that at home. But then I also sit back and think like, oh my gosh, they don't get that at home. Like, and then I started thinking, like, if I could just take this kid home, if I could just take care of this kid. Um, so there are days where I text my supervisor and I'm like, hey, not a really great day. Um, can I, you know, I'm going to take an hour and go to the gym during lunch. Um, and, yeah. you know, kind of recognizing that I need to, again, schedule in self-care and schedule in free time, even in my work days. Um, and my, I'm very grateful that my agency has been so flexible with me to make sure that I'm mm. okay but it really is like you said like kind of like you're realizing that maybe your own problems aren't as as bad um because I I sometimes come home to my roommate and I'm like oh my gosh my Miss USA prep is so hard and I can't find this and I'm like what first world problems you know that I'm it kind of puts into perspective of I'm allowed to be upset about it and also, these kids are also really struggling with things that they can't control. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely puts it in perspective. I've definitely been burnt out a lot more lately, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, just because our system, especially New Hampshire, are really failing these kids. There's not resource, enough resources to go around. So, um, With the resources, I mean, this is probably a question. This is an issue in every country. 
in and you, you work in mental health and we talk about mental health a lot rightly as we should there's obviously a lot of specific discussion in pageantry in terms of mental health and the toll it takes on contestants and title holders um i'm just interested from your perspective as someone who works in the field a mental health professional um what are the practical ways or practical steps that let's say a pageant girl or a pageant contestant could take in order to work on their mental health and i say that because i kind of view it as you have you go to the physical gym to work out so you're building your physical strength or your physical resilience which means you can deal with a heavier load and still be okay with it but i feel i i view it, the emotion and mental health exactly the same way I think you really do need to become stronger and more resilient because bad things are just going to happen and you never know when. Um, but in terms from your perspective, what are some of the practical ways that some of these pageant contestants could safeguard as much as they can their mental health? The biggest one that I've learned is that sometimes we need to schedule in breaks from social media um, mm -hmm. because social media, I know for me personally, is one of the takes the biggest toll on my mental health mm. because it's that idealized version of who we want to be right and then we compare um i know especially for pageant girls it's for pageant women it's like ooh, i like the way she did her eye makeup i don't know how to do that now i gotta figure that out because then i'm not going to be where she is and i don't feel like i'm ready um, I do that all the time i have super imposter syndrome um for sure i'm like I, like sometimes i look in the mirror and i'm like i'm going to miss usa like what like that doesn't make any sense. No one um, made a I, mistake. Yeah. Like who gave me this? Like who allowed me to do this? <laughs> yeah. um, and I say it all the time to my coaches and it's, it's kind of giving myself grace. Um, but I have to take time off social media. So there may be a, you know, a, I say, okay, I'm just going to look at it when I wake up and then maybe that's it for the day. Um, depending mm. on how I'm feeling. I've also really learned my coping skills is what we call them in the mental health field. Um, so I know if I had a hard day, I need to color. Like, even if I colored all day with kids, yeah. I need to come home and get off of the internet and get off the TV yeah. and read a book. And I think with pageant women, we're so busy. We have such busy schedules that we have to be really proactive and like tuned into what we need and plan it for yeah. ourselves. So it kind of goes back to that planning that time for sure. And that's what's helped me the most throughout the year. Interesting side note during, during the pandemic, um, adult coloring books. And I know this because I'm a published Amazon author. So you watch like sales spikes and things like this and adult coloring books, the sales of those went through the roof and all these people that I knew all around the world, for example, some people in the UK where they were really locked down hard, they would, they would be doing like a different adult coloring book every day. Um, and I've never really understood that because I've been, I'm not artistically blessed. And the idea of making a coloring book is like coloring one is just, I don't understand it, but how, can you explain like how therapeutic that is? Cause you're not alone. In, for me, like, so I'm not a creative person, but I like, <laughs> I'm so, I can't color, I, I can color, but I can't draw. I can't do like the graphic yeah. design stuff everyone does. So yeah. I like to take a book. I bought really nice markers. For me, it's just like my pure, like I get out my really expensive markers and I can, you know, just trace and it's mindless. For <laughs> me, it's really shutting yeah. my brain off to everything about the day. And I'm focused on staying in the lines of this little flower. And it, 
it just distracts my brain. And for some people, it's like, why are you like, for example, I hate journaling. Like some people are like, <laughs> journaling yeah. is so amazing. And it's so mindful. And I love it. And I'm like, I can't stand journaling, I would rather color a page. So we all have these different things that we put in our I call it the toolbox for the kids um, in our toolbox. And we're all so different that different things work for people. <laughs> It's so fascinating you say that thing about journaling because my best friend, he's a big proponent of journaling and I've reached out to a couple of other pageant girls who are also big proponents of journaling. Like I'm talking, they have entire bookcases filled with their hardcover leather-bound journals and I used to journal, I did. But he, here's a problem for me and I don't know if you resonate with this or you can explain this. When I journal, I feel like I go down the rabbit hole. I really do and I don't feel like I come back out. Like I, I, I blurt it all out, but in many ways I'm reliving something and it just makes it feel worse when what I really want to do, learn what I have to learn from it, sure, but just leave it in the past. So I don't find it particularly therapeutic. I feel like I don't want to open up the bunch of crazy. No, so maybe I... Yeah, and then I'm judging what I just wrote. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. not my <laughs> That's why I'm a huge proponent of therapy. Because I like I personally have my own therapist and I love it yeah. and I think everyone should try it once in their life because you just blurt it out to a stranger and then you can close, you mm. know, you walk out of the office and go about your day. Um, so that I kind of like, okay, you need to work through this thought. I worked through it. Great. It's gone. <laughs> it's again, funny that you say that because I, 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 I haven't had a therapist for a long time. I had one back when I was a kid. Um, but every now and then you just have like a bad day, you know, one of those days. And then somewhere I have been hugely invested in artificial intelligence. And someone mentioned that actually chat GPT, because it's learned so much, you, you can use it kind of as a life coach and a therapist. And I'm like, okay, spoiler alert, don't use it as a replacement. But I thought, okay, I'm going to tell chat GPT what my problem is, or one of the problems I had that day. And, um, I just asked you, what advice do you have? Like, what do you suggest? And you know what? It's actually pretty good. It was much better than journaling. I can tell you that because journaling, I just relive the problems and I'm just like, oh my God, I feel worse. And then anyway, but I think GPT, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is now eliminating my job as a therapist. <laughs> well, it's there, there are fascinating advances in the fields of mental health with AI chatbots. And a lot of people are like, oh, but, you know, there'll be this problem, there'll be that problem. And yes, granted, sure. AI is going to have problems, but it's not like every therapist out there is equally as good either. But it was amazing because you can tell it your problems. And because it's not a real person, there's no judgment. That, that, that's one of the things I think is very confronting about going to therapy is you have to tell someone what your problem is. And that is extremely, at least for myself, that's extremely uncomfortable. I don't know for yourself, yeah. but the AI has some, um, not yeah. bad. We're, like we're human beings too, right? So therapists are human beings and we're taught to have this non-judgmental, um, you know, mm. viewpoint and really meet the patient where they're at and not have biases, but we're yeah. human beings. So yeah. we're gonna have to uncover those and we're gonna have to talk about that's why we have our own supervision um yeah because there's definitely been times where i think like to myself like ooh, i'm judging this mom like ooh, i'm judging this kid and i have to take a step yeah. back and there if you're a good therapist you know there are some that you know have been through the ringer with it but if you're a good therapist you're able to do that for yourself and it took me a really long time to learn and reach out to my people for sure
how do you not judge yourself? Please teach me your ways because I'm very good when it comes to other people and maintaining that non-judgmental space. I'm brilliant at it. Yeah. When it comes to myself, I don't think I can go five seconds without saying, why did you do that? Oh my God, that's so stupid. You should not. It's like, you know, doctors make the worst patients. I was a tennis coach. Tennis coaches make the worst students and therapists sometimes with themselves are the most judgmental because they're like, Oh, I should know better. I should have done this. I shouldn't have. So how do you maintain the non-judgmental space for yourself? Um, that's why I'm in therapy <laughs> because <laughs> I need, look, I always, every therapist needs a therapist because it's, I, I do it all the time. And I say it to my kids straight up and I'm like, you know, I'm yeah. telling you to do this mindfulness activity. I also don't listen to myself sometimes. So if I say like, I should probably use a mindfulness activity, I'm going to walk away and be like, nah. So I also am very human with my kids of it yeah. is hard. Like I will be the therapist that says I go to therapy too. We yeah. all need help. We yes. all need somebody else to guide us. And I really don't know what my therapist thinks about me, but she definitely thinks I'm like <laughs> the hardest patient. I I have quite a few clients and I, I'm able to, I think anyway, maintain the non-judgmental space and really switch it to, a, okay, what, what can we do to move forward? I mean, at the end of the day, you, you listen to the story, but then it's always like, well, what, what do we want to do about this? What's an outcome that we could achieve? And I remember one of a psychotherapist, a well-known one, known one saying, you got to speak to yourself like your, your own best friend. And that really struck a chord with me because it was really, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. You know, when you spend so much time in self-judgment and someone says, you should be a little bit kinder to yourself. And it's just like, bing, you just got, it bounces off your head. But when he said, you got to speak to yourself like you're someone that you care about. And I was like, I don't know how that conversation would go. Yeah. Is, is that a recurring motif in your work, that overly like self-judgment, self-critical part? Especially with teenagers. Are my teenagers really struggle with self-image, with self-esteem, mm. with the negative self-talk? And it's a lot of kind of saying we're going to have to do positive affirmations. Like you wouldn't talk. And yeah. I use that. Would you say that to your best friend? I use it all the time. Yeah. Like, would you talk to yourself? Would you talk to your best friend like that? Like, well, no, but that's different. Like, how is it different? But it's not, is it? It's not. It's the same. No. Well, teenagers are stubborn. So they're like, no, it's not. No, it's not. So I kind of have to refocus them on on what we're really trying to do. Um, but some of them get it. And they have, like, positive affirmations on their walls. And they say it to themselves. And it's really a practicing technique for sure. There was some statistic. I can't remember where it came from. But someone mentioned it's come up more than once. Like for every negative thing that you say about yourself, you need to balance it out with, I think it was five positive things that you say about yourself and you, you have to do it. It's like a discipline. And at first, apparently, and I'm asking this because I, I want your opinion on it, whether it would work or not. At first, when you try it, it's you, you can't think of anything. And then when you do think of something positive to say about yourself, you don't believe it. So it's like, oh, yeah, well, I made a good breakfast this morning and I dress well. I've got a good sense of this. And, you know, I work pretty hard here. But apparently over time, it makes a really big difference. Have you heard this strategy? And what yeah. do you think of it? So I think every person, obviously, I do this mostly with teenagers. Yeah. Um, 
I think every person is different. If I have a really stubborn teenager, they're yes. not going to buy into it. They're like, no. But if I have the ones, I think if you're motivated to do the work, it's mm. more likely that you will start to believe those things. So it's right. the people who are in the stages of change of, I want to be better. I want to get better. I know mm. that I can do, like, I, I feel like I can do this. They're the ones that usually um, are able to do that. But I do that exercise all the time. So I have them write down, you know, let's, if they're having a negative thought about themselves, we write it down. And then we're going to write the opposite of that. So if they say like, oh my gosh, my hair is so, it's, it's so gross today. We're going to write, my hair is beautiful today. Even if it's not true, like maybe their hair doesn't look, you know, the best or whatever it is. Like we're still going to write it down because we're trying to get you to believe that. And the more that you say it to yourself, the more it becomes real. What do you do with the stubborn ones? You've mentioned stubborn teenagers on a couple of occasions. And I used to work with teenagers as a tennis coach. And what I found that given my particular talents, the tennis coaching turned into therapy sessions. Anyway, let's be honest. Um, but I liked working with the stubborn ones because to me, it, present, it presented a challenge. And, you, and it was fascinating because there's always a reason. This is what I say. There's always a reason why someone is the way that they are. This is where the non-judgment comes in. So if they're stubborn, if they refuse to do something, it's not because they woke up on the wrong side of bed. There's going to be a reason for it. And you need to find out that reason. Then maybe you can find your way around it. But I found when I explained how much I love doing that sort of work, other people would be like, isn't that exhausting? And I, but I really enjoyed it. But for yourself, when you have the stubborn ones, how do you deal with those? Because very often, I think those are the ones who need the most help. I am so sorry. So I'm very sarcastic with everybody like I just have kind of like a sarcastic I but I don't sugarcoat things so I'm very <laughs> to the point and yeah. sarcastic and teenagers appreciate that so when I they're do. when they say something like oh, I just can't do it like or like I yelled at my teacher because she was being dumb and I go oh yeah. so when you finished yelling at her was she not dumb anymore and they were like uh -huh. oh, no <laughs> I go, you still got in trouble. so how does like, what did you I, achieve how does it make it better Right. And we like talk about it, but I say it in that way. And I'm like, you know, I kind of separate. I'm like, but seriously, let's rethink this. And they appreciate it because adults don't usually talk to them like that. Like, depending on where they grew up or things like that, adults will kind of talk down to them and yeah. validate them. So I try to bring humor and like being a human being back into the equation. And it helps when you build rapport with the kids, obviously. Oh, oh yeah. For yeah, sure. yeah, no, um, that, that's a very important step. Yeah. But it just struck that that struck me as so funny, because I, I was a very popular coach, we would have tennis camps, and they would do in the survey forms, who was your favorite coach, and I would win every single time, hands down. Um, but I that sarcasm, that dry sense of humor, which I think Australians are kind of known for maybe the Brits, Americans, not so much. But the the sarcasm, I, I would be exactly like you, I'd be very honest, and blunt but in a respectful way and obviously having built rapport first those are the fundamentals you can't just be sarcastic to someone you've you have no rapport with it's not going to go down well but why do you think the teenagers respond to that so well i don't know i just and granted some of them don't some of them mm. if they're like in a really bad mood they'll they'll kind of shut down more and i have to readjust I'm like, okay, yeah, this is yeah. a good, a good talk trying sure. to bring this up. Um, but I think again, if somebody's talking to them like they're a human, like 
it's it's not like well bud you seem really angry right now why is that like you're continuously hearing that you're gonna be like well i don't know why i'm angry and it's making me more angry so if you like for me kids just want to laugh like kids want to have fun they especially teenagers like they don't want to be taken too seriously because their parents and their teachers talk to them so seriously all the time because they're getting in trouble so if you joke with them and like i know you're not a bad kid you just don't understand how to how to communicate then they're like oh yeah and it makes them trust you right like it it allows them Mm. to build that trust with you as a clinician and know that you want to be there for them yeah no it's making me miss my uh teenage coaching days because i I really enjoyed enjoyed that and and that's the sense of humor as well i i think i remember most of the times that we had a good laugh um more more than anything else but i just need to switch tax for a sec so you you've got miss usa obviously coming up soon do we do we have a date for it yet i know that you said it's in the fall yeah we have we don't have any information yet so we will see okay Okay, so if it's in the fall, then because it would have to be if it's going to be before Miss Universe. So it's coming up within the next few months. Um, How are you feeling about that? I'm really excited. I think I'm as much as I love to be Miss USA, I'm not going in kind of thinking I have to do everything in my in my in my power to be Miss USA. It's not there are 51 amazing women who are going mm. to this competition. And my main, my main thought is I want to know all of them. I just yeah. want to get to know everybody and learn and connect and grow and be able to show my best version, the best version of myself and also represent a state that has meant so much to me. And I work and I live and I'm here all the time. So I'm excited to be able to compete at one, one of the biggest pageant stages in the world, which is still weird to me. Like who's again, who's allowing me to do that. Um, and to be able to connect with really amazing women and mm. try to like use my platform to share, share my platform with more people so that more people yeah. can receive the resources and the education that they, they should have. Absolutely. Um, let me just ask you a silly question before we go to the final 10, because we've been on for over an hour and I feel there's many other topics I could talk to you about, but can you explain, I asked you about the state motto. And as I said, it's the only thing I really know about New Hampshire. It's a live free or, or die. Is it, is that the state motto? It is. It's on every, um, license plate on every car. License plate. What, what does it mean? Is it kind of like the live fast, die young? Is that the intent of the motto or is there some other deeper meaning behind it? I think it could, I could be wrong for all like the history buffs, like look, watching, I may be completely wrong. Um, but I think it has to do with like the revolutionary war where it's kind of like, we want to be free. We would rather be free than die. Or or, like, if we're not free, then we would rather die. Kind of like we want to be free from England. I don't. I could be so wrong. Oh. I grew up in I grew up in Rhode Island, where we're like the ocean state because we have oceans. Um, so when I moved here, it was very much like a culture shock of like, no, it's live for your die. Okay. I think it's something. It's a good aspirational quote. Um, I, I think it pertains to maybe a different time, yes. but uh, yeah, it's it's the only thing I know know about New Hampshire um, at the moment. You can find a t-shirt yeah. everywhere with it or a sweatshirt, but it's on every single license plate in the state. 
That's amazing. Um, well, just before we get to the final 10, Brittany, is there anyone that you want to give a shout out to for supporting you along your journey? Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, I have amazing pageant coaches and my pageant coaches, my formers, the former Miss New Hampshire USAs mm -hmm. who have been so supportive. We have formers from different states um, that have been amazing and helping me and providing me wardrobe and letting me borrow jewelry and helping me learn how to do makeup things um, because I'm not a makeup girly. So I've really had to to learn and I wouldn't be able to work. I wouldn't be where I was without my sponsors in my village for sure. What's the one part of makeup that you just hate doing the most? Lashes, brows, mascara, contouring? It, so do you my, hate them all equally? I hate them all, but foundation <laughs> is like the bane of my existence because when I'm spray tanned, I have a different foundation. When I self tan, I have a different foundation. When I just don't have any tan on, I have a different foundation. And it's like, I don't remember which one is which anymore. So I just put it on and hope it matches my skin. <laughs> So if you turn out like a giant Cheeto on on this Miss USA stage, we'll know why. It's because you've put the put the wrong foundation it on. It will just be my face. Every like the rest of my body won't match my face. <laughs> and my it's... sister, like my sister has her cosmetology license. So she does makeup, she does hair, oh, wow. she does lashes. And so she knows how to do all of these things. I'm like clueless. I'm like, I watch a video. <laughs> Sephora people at Sephora, please color match me. It was I, for those people watching at home who haven't seen pageant girls in person. Um, it is very striking because I think a lot of it is because of how you appear on camera under very bright lights. And um, I, I naturally tan have quite a dark complexion. So all the girls hate me, but I, I had a good friend come over and stay with me and I know how she normally looks. Yes. And then she came over and I was like, like what what have you done did you go for a bath in chocolate like why are you so brown and it looked and i know her very well and it looked ridiculous like in person but then under light you see why it's like oh okay but then in my head it's like well you're only under the lights for five seconds i have to look at you like this all yeah. the time my, my boyfriend is not a pageant guy like he's never even been to a pageant but you know he's i came back after a photo shoot one day and i was so dark and i have freckles yeah. and red hair like i'm white like i like i look irish and he was like why do you why are you brown <laughs> like why is your skin like that i don't tan naturally and i yeah. like, it's gonna look good in the photos it's okay it scrubs off like it's fine does it scrub off though doesn't it make a horrible mess when it comes off like orange bread sheet bed sheets and then orange drains in the shower i've heard that's a thing it's it's i i like the expect like so mine never looks orange i've learned i've had to okay, kind of good. i'm also allergic to everything so i need very like specific oh. self tanners um right. that come that look really natural and look awesome um and i know how to maintain them so they don't come off unless yeah. i really scrub and then I kind of right. look like I have a disease for a little bit because I'm like patchy um, on parts that don't come off. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned. We're making pageantry sound really attractive, aren't we? It's, yeah, like it's. <laughs> it is a full time job. It is even like the week of a pageant. Like yeah. you can't like shower all the way because if you like like scrub too hard, like you get yeah. spray off. So you have to like rinse with water, and you're smelly like it's <laughs> i love it i do 
I, I remember from back in my tennis coaching days, a lot of the girls were experimenting with spray tans. And obviously when you're playing tennis, you, you have to run, you're going to sweat. And I remember hearing all these like, oh, I can't run. I can't sweat. And I was like, why? Oh, because if I sweat this and this will happen. I'm like, I don't care. You're going to do it anyway. Yeah. And then I remember one, one girl was watching her play and down her leg, this one trickle of orange brown sludge was going down her leg, down to her ankle and going all over her sock. And she looked like she was made of chocolate, but she was melting. And at that moment, I just remember feeling like thinking, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to fake tan because if I can't run around and I can't do this, I can't shower. It's just too much work. What you see is what you get. Oh no, I've come to love hot yoga, but that means you're sweating. That would so, be the worst. That opens up all the pores. It's terrible. So <laughs> I have, they give me a towel, like a white towel. So I'm oh, wiping no. my face and all of a sudden, like you just see my face in the white towel and I have to like put it in the, in the can. I was like, I'm so sorry. And it's just my spray tan on the towel. I think, I think that would be the worst sport to do. If you're worried about your, your self tan is actually hot yoga. Cause you're literally just there sweating it all out. <laughs> uh, dear me. Anyway, um, that was a slight detour. Let's go through these final 10 and then we'll wrap up. So 10 random questions to finish us up. Number one, what is your favorite word? Ooh, my favorite word is, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, um, it's gonna sound so dumb, but all of the kids are saying it now. So I really like to say the word slay. (laughs) Every kid comes in, they leave, they go, Brittany, that was such a slay session. So slay. (laughs) (laughs) That is the other thing I miss about working with teenagers is all the words they made up. (laughs) Number two, what is your least favorite word? Crumble. I love crumble cookie. Um, Number three, in life, what gets you excited or what turns you on? What gets me excited? Ooh, it's when, like, an underdog. I love an underdog. Underdogs get me so excited. So somebody you really don't think is going to, like, stack up and they do and they win the whole thing. I love that. Yep. Okay. So that's what turns you on. What about number four? What turns you off? Mm. I don't like when you're just you're mean for no reason I think like to somebody you don't know that sounds very like typical but I work with a lot of kids who kind of have those mean girl moments and that's just it doesn't make sense to me number five what sound or noise do you love I love bird noises I've kind of like become a bird watcher ever since we had little baby birds in our front door. They built the nest. So I really have like a, oh. I love baby bird noises. Have you heard Australian bird noises? No. <laughs> when, when we get off here, Google cockatoo screeching, like Australian cockatoo screeching. <laughs> I think you might change. You might have to qualify bird noises because not all bird noises are born equal. Anyway, oh. um, Number six, what sound or noise do you hate? I hate car honking. 
I lived in Boston for four years and it's mm-hmm. all that I heard was honking of people's cars, the horns. I think it's another language. It's like being yeah. bilingual. They, they communicate using their horn. New York, when I went to New York, it's like they never take their hands off the horn. It's on the horn all the time. For no reason. That's just I'm how like, they say hello. Yeah. <laughs> a diff, diff, different place. Uh, number seven, if you could have any one superpower, what would you pick and why? Ooh, I would um, want to read people's minds and that way I don't have to guess. <laughs> I would love to just know what people are thinking. That would, that would be useful as a therapist. Yeah. That would come in very, very handy. Uh, number eight, what job or career? other than your own, would you most like to attempt? I would love to be the president. I would 100% be the president of the United States. I would love it. Are there plans in place? No, <laughs> not anytime soon. <laughs> I, would, I, I truly would love to run for some kind of like house or Senate seat, like in the state, um, yeah. so like a state senator, a state representative. That's kind of always been in the back of my like five-year, 10-year plan. Um mm-hmm. But we'll see. We got to get there first. <laughs> what job would you definitely not like to attempt? I think just in my career itself, I would never want to be like a med provider, like a prescriber. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's just the first thing that came to my mind because that's so much responsibility and we're, our med providers have a lot of kind of work that goes behind them so I like being a therapist and just providing my therapy fair enough final question if heaven exists what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates Ooh, um what I want him to say I think I would want him to kind of go through all the highlights of my life of like what my top kind of just be more reflective about it and kind of go through that and reflect on all the, of the amazing things I've been able to accomplish. So you want it like a, a TikTok or an Instagram reel of your best moments? Yes. Ooh, that would be good. <laughs> that would be something to look, to look forward to. Yeah. Well, Brittany, it's uh, it's been a blast. Um, we've been on for a while. Uh, thank you so much for your time and coming on. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I had fun. And uh, best of luck with Miss USA, whenever it is. I'm sure the entire pageant world is going to know when it is. We don't know when it is. Do we know where it is? Not. There are a lot of rumors, um, but okay. nothing is really like solid, solidified yet. So we have no okay. idea. Sounds like we're all going to be learning, finding out at the same time. That's sure well. it is. Anyway, um, good luck with that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and thank you to everyone for watching. I'll keep you on the line just a sec once I hang out with the audience, but we will speak to you next time. Bye for now. Hey, thanks so much for watching. Sorority Access is now open. So if you'd like to join an amazing group of women, and learn how to be the most powerful, confident, and impactful queen possible, head to thepageantsorority.com. I'll see you there, and see you in the next video.